morning, everybody. It's good to have you here. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We are uh, winding down our study of the book of 1 Timothy verse by verse. We're getting into the last chapter. And when we're done with this, we'll start with 2 Timothy. So you can start reading ahead a little bit. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you a little story. So this was a, this is a painful week for me. I got to learn some lessons the hard way. And uh, maybe you've learned some lessons that way as well at times. And it's funny sometimes how we learn lessons we thought we already knew, but we still have to learn them in a little more painful way. So about uh, four years ago, uh, I decided I need to find a way to get some more exercise. And so I did some reading and decided I was going to start running. And that's something I just had never done. I'd always avoided running at all costs uh, my whole life. But, you know, it kind of seemed like a, like a reasonable plan for me. Uh, so I began, run- I actually, I started running. I just got um, the Couch to 5K program that some of you have used. I loaded it on my iPod and went from just not running at all to, to being able to run 3.1 miles about nine weeks later. And so over the last four years, I've just, I've kept that up and kind of kept pushing it a little bit. And, um, but I'm kind of a, as a runner, I'm really, I'm kind of a hack because uh, I don't, you know, I mean, I've never like, I, I run like a spaz and, um, you know, I don't, I don't warm up. I don't stretch. I don't, I literally park my, I, I run along the dike. So I, I drive down by the mill. I park my car. I takes me uh, to get under the tunnel, get my headphones on, and then I just, I just start running. No warm-up or nothing, and then I run, and I come back, and I run all the way to the car, and then I collapse in the seat, and I drive home dangerously. And that's basically, that's how I run. No technique, no nothing. It's really, it's really sad. And so um, anyways, it's, it, but it's worked fine for me for about four years, and then uh, back in March, went to Nicaragua, and so I had about a month period where I couldn't run, and, and so I remember thinking now, I, I really, I, would, I think right before I went to Nicaragua, I was at the, the, the best kind of schedule length and time I'd ever had for running, so when I got back, I decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick up right there. That's what I'm going to do, and so I got back and went out running the first day, and I kind of, and I ran. I tried to run the distance and the speed and everything, and, and it didn't feel that good, you know, and so I came home, and I'm like, well, it doesn't feel good, but you know, a man, and just like runs through it. So I'm going to, I'm just going to run through it. And so the next day, and then I decided, well, I'm going to, in order to kind of get back where I want to be, I'm going to run every day until I get right back to where I want to be instead of every other day. So I kept running and it kind of got more painful. And then I thought, it, the, the pain got pretty bad, so I thought, well, I'll, I'll kind of back off for a couple days and, you know, let myself heal a little bit. And so I did that, started running again. Pain didn't go away. And so I became convinced at that point, like, the only way to get through this was to just run even harder and even longer and even faster. That was my plan. And every day just got more and more painful. Do you remember, like, the old definition of insanity? which was doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So I was truly insane through that whole process. And uh, I just kept doing it more and more until, um, until this last week, uh, woke up, and, and over the last couple weeks, um, on the weekends, I've, it's kind of been reduced to having to sit during preaching because it's hard to stand up. So finally, I woke up in the middle of the night this, this last week in so much pain. And so the next morning, I finally called a physical therapist and went in. And after I explained my story and he got done laughing and, you know, telling other people my story, um, then we got down to the business of trying to get some healing. Now, I actually went to 
a therapist for two reasons. Number one, I want to figure out what's causing the pain and I want to deal with it, which I've discovered. Um, I, I, I kind of had this idea like you'll go in and a physical therapist, a sports therapist will just kind of get you all fixed up. And I didn't realize, I think actually they think that healing comes through pain. I'm actually, you know, you go in and they're like, does this hurt? No, does this hurt? No, does this hurt? No, does this hurt? Yes! You know, it's like they know it's coming. They know it hurts. But then, then they got to twist you and pull you and poke you where it hurts and make you do exercises that make you but there was a second reason I went to a therapist, and that is um, I also want to get some technique so that um, in the future I can continue to run in a way that becomes more helpful for me than it is, than it is hurtful. So sometimes in life we have to relearn things. If we're going to do them the right way, if we're going to go forward, and it makes me think about how the Christian life is a lot like that. I mean, we all kind of, we, we, we have this goal in mind, and Jesus laid out the goal for us. What is the goal in life? What is the main thing in life? Jesus said it's to love. And he kind of broke it down. He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. It's really the same thing. You cannot love God and not love people. Scripture is clear about that. So it's one thing. We love God, and we love God's children. We love the people that God has made. Here's the problem. For many of us, we set out every day. We kind of, kind of, we get our, our track clothes on and our running shoes on, and we're going to go out, and we're going to live for God today, and we're going to love God, and we're going to love people. And for all of us, really, the problem is that we don't intuitively know how to do that. We don't instinctively know how to truly love God and how to really love the people around us. And consequently, we have to make a mess of our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. And so in 1 Timothy, Paul's attempting to reorient us, if you will, to, to retrain us. And, and, and here's the thing I've discovered. Sometimes it's painful, like, like physical therapy. So he's been talking about how do you truly glorify God? Not, not, not how do you want to glorify God, but what actually glorifies God? How do you grow in a loving relationship with God? And he's talked about how to grow in loving relationships with people. And he's talked about some, some kind of interesting scenarios. Like he's talked about how to love people who are in governing authorities around us, which I think a lot of us struggle with. You know, how do we love the people that we didn't vote for, but who are in office anyways? And he's like, he's like I know, I know that's hard, but you need to love them anyways. And some of you have said, when we talked about some of that, you said it was hard. It was hard to hear that you should love the politicians that you don't love. And sometimes that, that's what it's like. That we, He talked about how to love church leaders and how we relate to, to younger men and older men, remembering younger women and older women and how, how we relate with widows and, and just with, with sinners and people who are blowing it. How do we do that? Now, and sometimes it's painful. And sometimes as we reorient ourselves around the word of God, it's tough. It's hard, but that's what we're doing. We're attempting to let God, if you will, renew us, remake us from the inside out so that we don't live an insane life where we keep doing the dumb things over and over and over again and not understanding why we keep getting the same result. We're going to continue on today, and we're going to talk about two more groups of people, and that's kind of what we're doing right now, just going through, and here's a group, and here's a group. But before we do that, let me, let me pray for us. Father, I want to thank you for uh, bringing us here this morning I want to thank you for your word, which uh, is, is beautiful, is wonderful for our hearts, which speaks your words to us, which can uh, reorient us, which can revolutionize our lives. And I, I pray this morning that you would be our teacher and guide us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, 
All right, so two just kind of different groups of people that Paul continues on to talk about. And the first one is this. He talks about how to deal with your boss. So for those of you who have jobs and uh, for maybe those of you who don't have jobs, you'll still be able to relate to this. For those of you who are in school and you, have a, uh, you feel like a slave to your teacher, it's all good. We're going to talk about all that, how to deal with your boss. So we're going to dive right in, and here's what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. Now all who are under the yoke of slavery, we'll talk about that, should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Now, he's going to start by talking about slaves. And I know some of you will make the jump there really quick and you'll be like, yes, I feel like a slave. I feel like I'm treated like a slave. Some of you will be like, "Ah, I don't know if this really relates to me, so we'll see. But first of all, let's just contextualize it. There were a lot of slaves and the Roman Empire back then. And there were a lot of different ways, actually, that a person could become a slave. Some people became slaves through, through war. They became prisoners of war. And sometimes, instead of, uh, instead of killing all of their enemies, uh, the Roman Empire would sometimes take the best and the brightest and, and allow them to live and turn them into slaves. And there were many of those kind of slaves in the Roman Empire. And some of them would have been in Paul's era in Timothy's church. Uh, back in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul talked about a group of men called tra- uh, slave traders. Uh, a slave trader was somebody who sometimes would go to another country, um, and would go to a tribe of people, this is one we might be familiar with, and just steal human beings. Maybe take some mothers, take some children, take some fathers, just put them in chains, drag them away from their family by force, go back to their country and sell them into slavery. They would just turn them into a piece of, of property. They would not treat them as an image bearer of God. Instead, they would, they would sell them. And, and in fact, the Bible says that God hated uh, trade uh, sla- uh, slave traders that it was abominable to God. Um, so there were prisoners of war. Some people were just captured and sold into slavery. Um, some people, and this will seem strange to us, they're what we called uh, indebted slaves. These were people back then who, let's say, they were going to borrow some money. They wanted to buy a house, uh, start a business. Um, maybe they wanted to get the latest chariot in their garage. And so they would, they would go and they would borrow money from someone and they would write up a contract. And the contract would say, I'll pay back this much a month for this many months. And, and that's how I'll pay it back. But if I, if I don't pay it back, see back then, um, if you didn't pay back your debt, you couldn't just get more credit. You couldn't just get another credit card with, you know, zero interest and transfer all those funds. You couldn't file Chapter 11 or file bankruptcy. You couldn't just not answer the phone when the debt creditors called. You'd have to pay that person back. You'd actually have to pay the person back. It's crazy. It's ridiculous that a society would do that. And here's how you do it. If you didn't pay your debt back, you became that person's slave. And what they would do is they would figure out, like, here's how much I'm going to pay you an hour, and you're going to work for me until you pay back that debt. Sometimes you'd work for the person, or sometimes that person would, would contract you out to someone else, and you would work until your debt was paid, and then you were free. I mean, I was thinking, imagine if we did that today, right? If people who bought vehicles they couldn't afford and bought houses and vacations and went into terrible credit card debt, if, if they just were sold into... Slavery. Anyways, uh, and then there was another group, and this is kind of, this will sound crazy to us, but sometimes people would sell themselves into slavery, and they would do it for financial security. Oftentimes, people who sold themselves into slavery uh, had, had better jobs and better standards of living than the common day laborer. 
Now, now the way that the common uh, day laborer worked was, let's say you were a plumber or a carpenter or you, you worked on the farm, is you would go to the city center each day and hope that someone would come and hire you for the day. They'd only hire you for the day. So there's really no, there's no paycheck security here. They'd hire you for the day. You'd go out and work. You'd come home. They'd pay you cash. You may not have work again for a week or two. But if you sold yourself into, sla- uh, into slavery, these people often got some of the better jobs. They would serve as managers and artisans, cooks, teachers. They would often be considered part of the household, and they would, they would be like family, and they would have a paycheck, and they would be taken care of. Now, slavery was very, very common back then. In fact, it's estimated that in a church like Timothy's that we've been studying, approximately one-third of the people in that church would have been slaves. Think about that. One out of every three, and for a lot of these people, they would come to church on the weekend as slaves, and their masters would be at the same church worshiping with them. And so sometimes there would be some friction between masters and slaves when they came and they were worshiping together. And then they went home, and now how do they relate together? Notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say if you're a slave, you should revolt, you should rebel, you should overthrow your master. He doesn't say that. And because of that, some people think that that. The Bible supports uh, slavery, which it absolutely does not. Um, Mounts, in his um, commentary on this book, says this. I think he puts it well. He says, now, this verse on slavery can be read as a concession to culture without agreeing with it. Rather, the success of the gospel is more significant than the lot of any one individual. What he's saying is this. He's saying that, that Paul's teaching on slavery is not really just, the, the focus of the gospel is not just on the rights of every individual. And this is, this is lost on us today. Because most of us today, our life is all about us. And it's all about our rights, and it's all about what we deserve, and it's all about what I should get, and it's all about entitlement, it's about me, me, me. And what you see when you come to the gospel is it's all about God, God, God. It's all about the gospel. It's all about the fact that we live in a dark world. And it's all about the fact that God wants to use us as light in the world, as salt, to bring people to Christ. It's not just about us. And so what what he's really doing here is Paul saying, I don't want to fight a battle over slavery right now. What I want to do is I want to figure out a way so that no matter where you are, no matter what your life is like, you can reflect the love of Christ wherever you are. That's the battle that we should be fighting. We should be building the kingdom of God. So he says here, consider masters worthy of full respect. Right? So how, how, do we, how do we do that? Now, we might stay, and I could ask how many of you, and you don't have to raise your hand, right, but how many of you hate your jobs? In, in your mind, you're raising your hands, right? So for a lot of people, they, they hate their jobs. They don't want to go to their jobs in the morning, and, and as it's been said, that's why they pay you, because it's work. It's not fun, right? If it was fun, they wouldn't have to pay you. It's, that's why in the morning, when I get up and I come to work and I stop to get a mocha, it's why I have to pe- pay people to make that, that mocha. Like baristas have to get up, in the morning, they have to get out of bed, have to, they have to drive to work, they have to give up their time and their energy to deal with jerks who need to have their coffee and their, their caffeine. And, and my guess is if you didn't pay them, they wouldn't make it, right? Like I'm guessing if I stopped paying for my mochas, they'd stop making my mochas. That's just my guess. Because they don't do it for fun. They do it because it's work. It's a job. They need a paycheck. I saw a survey the other day that said, not surprising, that 70% of Americans don't like their jobs. 
I was surprised it was only 70%. But they said that 90% of Americans said, quite frankly, they really don't want to get, they're so uninspired by their job that they'd prefer not to get up in the morning and go to work. 90% of Americans said, I'd rather sleep than go to work. So this is kind of a, you know, how, how do we deal with this as Christians? Well, notice what Paul says. He says, you need to give respect to your boss, even if you're a slave. All right, so this is like even, even more difficult than, than your situation. You might be thinking, I feel like a slave, and I, I have a jerk for a boss, and, 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 and I, you know, but here's what he's saying. He's like, but, but you're not a slave, and, and you could walk away, right? But he's talking to people who couldn't. They were slaves, which, which you aren't. And P- Paul's command isn't conditional. Paul isn't like, you know, hey, if, you're, if your boss is an imbecile, then you don't have to do this, right? Like, how many of you work for imbeciles? All right, don't, no. I'm looking at Matthias. <laughs> See, Paul, Paul is assuming that some bosses are imbeciles. He's just assuming that, that some bosses are harsh and demanding. In fact, I would say this, as I read through Scripture, what I find is that oftentimes God puts us in situations where we're under the authority of imbeciles. Like it's actually part of God's plan. Why would, why would God do that? Because God wants to grow our character. And he wants to make us more like Jesus. And, and that's a great way to get us there, by the way. To work for an idiot. Like many godly people in the Bible were there. They lived there. But instead of, instead of griping, Instead of complaining, instead of making excuses, these are people who honored God by honoring the the idiot, the imbecile that was an authority over them, right? Now, maybe your boss doesn't deserve respect, but you give it for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this can be applied not just to your job, but it can be applied if you're a student, right? Maybe it applies at home. Uh, It might apply uh, at a place that you volunteer, where you work. Maybe you're smarter and more intelligent than the people that you you work under, but at the same time, it's a way that you honor God. Now, he actually talks about two categories of bosses here. One is you might be working for an unbeliever. So the question would become, why would you honor an unbeliever? And his answer is this, so that God's name and God's word won't be slandered. What he's saying is this, if, if you claim to be a Christian, if you go to work and you make sure that everyone knows that you're a Christian, and that's, that's great, but if you do that and you show up late for work, if you're, if you're lazy at work, if you're stealing office supplies and bad-mouthing your boss, and if you're not producing for the company, that's reflecting on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's reflecting on the gospel. And what he's saying is, is that This is bigger than your job, all right? This is about the gospel. This is about you being a light where you work. There's there's more at stake at at work than just you feeling satisfied. And Now, I hear that quite a bit from people. Today, I hear people say, I really don't feel satisfied and and fulfilled in my job, you know, as a a barista. I I think it's really funny. Like, I, I go down to Nicaragua, and what I hear from people is, I'm just glad to have a job. I'm just glad to have a paycheck. I just thank God that I can buy food and that I can clothe my kids. I thank God for that. I come back here and I, put, I hear people who have a great paycheck going, but I just don't feel, I don't feel fulfilled, you know? It's like, um, I just don't feel like I'm getting all the satisfaction and joy and I, I feel like my company isn't, isn't really um, fulfilling my inner child and my need to be creative. And you understand, and I don't want to be rude, but, but your company does not exist um, to, to fulfill your inner child. 
all right? They, they, they exist to make money. This might be like news to you, but chances are the company you work for exists to make money. If they don't, you should probably start looking for another job, all right? They're there to provide a service. They're there to provide employment. You're there to work hard, and you get a paycheck. Amen? That's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. Here's the deal. If you want to have meaning at work, then make meaning at work. Make meaning through your God-given mission. Get on your knees. Go to God and say, God, what do you want me to do at work? What's my, I'm not going to wait for my boss to give me a, a, a mission at work. I'm going to let you give me a mission at work. Now, I love this because there's kind of two groups of people in our church. There are those of you who are waiting for your boss to give you meaning and it's going to be a long wait. And there are those of you who just decided you're going to do it yourself. And I love being around those of you who decided you're going to do it yourself because you are on fire. When we talk about your job, I don't hear complaining. I don't hear whining. What I hear is ministry and, and prayer requests and ways that God is using you. And that's what he's talking about. Make meaning through your God-given mission. Be a light where you work. Show up on time. There's a great way to turn the light on. Just show up on time. Work hard. Be respectful. Be ethical. Be pleasant to work with. Love people even when it's hard because people notice that. People, people admire that. People want to know about what, what is it that's causing that in you. So he says, if you work for a boss who's not a Christian, you know what? You work hard to advance the gospel. Here's the second thing. You might have a boss who's a Christian, and that's great too. He says, those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they're brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and to urge on them. So now, here's an interesting uh, scenario. And we know this happened in some churches in the Roman Empire. A church would gather together and people would worship. And there would be slaves and masters there. So outside the walls of the church, there would be the master and there would be a slave. But we know circumstances where at church, the slave was an elder and an authority and the master was underneath them. And you can imagine how this started to create some tension in the church. And how does, how does this all work? And he says, now, he's talking about all this kind of interesting stuff. And he says, and it, this, this can also play out outside of the church. Like, for instance, if I've talked with Christian employers before. Uh, some, some people in our church and other people I know who are Christians, who have a business. And I've actually had Christian employers tell me, I don't like to hire Christians. I don't like to hire them because once they find out I'm a Christian, they always take advantage of me. And they'll be like, I had one guy who, uh, an employer who was telling me he had this employee who was a Christian, always super spiritual, talking about Jesus, but he would always be late for work. And when they'd ask him, why are you late for work? He'd say, oh, I was, you know, I was reading my devotions this morning, and oh, I got so caught up in the Spirit of God. God was just speaking to me. And you know, you know how it is, just kind of got carried away. And, you know, I mean, you can't fire me, right? Because we're, we're brothers, and, you know, we go to the same church, and what would Jesus do? And Jesus would fire you, but that's like another, like, Paul... <laughs> Paul says you need to work extra hard for your Christian boss. Work with excellence, work with integrity. So if your boss isn't a Christian, you work hard to influence them with the gospel. If your boss is a Christian, you work hard for them so their business will thrive and they'll, they'll have greater influence for the gospel. You want that business to, to, to thrive. He says you do it because you love them. When I was in a seminary, I had a job working for a, a brokerage 
And my boss was a Christian, and the guy who owned the company was a Christian. And here's a few things I, I knew about both of these guys. I knew that they loved God. I knew that they took really good care of their employees. I know that the company used a lot of its profits to support evangelistic missions in Portland area, to support missionaries all around the world, to tithe to churches in the area. And that really made me want to work hard for that company. I wanted that company to succeed because I knew that the profits were being used to forward the gospel. That's what he's saying here. If you're a Christian, work hard for your Christian boss so they'll succeed. In Colossians, it kind of gives us an overarching principle. It says this, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And, and now this applies to all of us. Wherever we are, whether we're at a job, whether we're at school, or, or, or whether we're taking care of the kids at home, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not, not for men, not for a boss, not for a master, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. What he's saying is this, for every believer, work is a sacred duty. It really can honor God. So do it to honor God. I'd ask you that question. Are you working hard? Are you working to honor God? Is your, is your believing boss served so well? Are you working so hard for him that it's really advancing the gospel and, and his ability to, to, to support what's going on in the world? If your boss is an unbeliever, are you, are you serving him so well that you are light in that place? In Ephesians, Paul says this, he says, knowing that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is a slave or whether he is free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not mistreat them. For those of you who are bosses, this holds true for you. Do not mistreat them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. So Paul says, I know sometimes our job, jobs are hard, sometimes they're a little stressful. So we need to reorient ourselves and get God's, God's view of this. And then he moves on to another group of people. People we deal with in the church, and sometimes outside of the church, and that is people who teach false doctrine. Now, he's not just talking about people who teach false doctrine from here or teach in a classroom, but really anyone in your life who's teaching or trying to spread a false gospel. So let's look at that. He says, if anyone teaches false doctrine, that is truth about God, and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching. So now right away, this is a little bit of a challenge for us. We live in a culture that, that rejects absolutes, right? Like in, in our culture, there is no absolute today. There's only points of view, right? There's only opinions. And all, in our culture, all opinions are equally valid. All interpretations are equally welcome. Um, I was looking on the website of a, of a United Methodist Church the other day, and right on the banner on the front, and this isn't true of all of them, but just for this church, on the front banner, it said this, we accept all biblical interpretations. Now, I kind of laughed when I saw that, because first of all, that couldn't possibly be true. All right, you couldn't, right? For instance, they wouldn't welcome my biblical interpretation, because my biblical interpretation is, there's only one interpretation, right? So right away, they're not going to like me, all right? Now, I understand why they do it. What they're trying to do is they want everyone to feel welcome and they want everyone to feel like they have a valid point of view. And, but my question would be, while, while everyone might feel welcome, would Jesus feel welcome in their church? When Jesus walks up the aisle and says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, and the way is narrow, and the gate is narrow, and the wide, you know, the path is wide to destruction, 
And they might be going, dude, you're, you're so intolerant, right? Like there's a lot of points of view, right, Jesus? And, and that's kind of the mantra today. It's tolerance. Can't we just accept everyone? Can't we just accept every point of view? But the problem is the Bible says, no, we cannot. Because there's right and there's wrong and there's true and there's false and there's God and there's Satan and there's heaven and there's hell and there's light and there's darkness. And that's the way that it is. Now, he's talking here about, about sound doctrine. He's talking about true doctrine. Now, what is, what is sound doctrine anyways? I've given you three things in your outline. How do we know when, it, when a doctrine is true as opposed to when, when it's not true? The first is this, in your notes I put, that it's healthy. A sound doctrine is healthy. Actually, that's what the word sound means in the Greek. It means, it means healthy. It means that sound doctrine leads to health. It leads to, a, it leads to a healthy relationship with God. It leads to a deepening love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Sound doctrine leads towards loving the scriptures and developing healthy habits in life and, and having healthy relationships and healthy thoughts. Where unhealthy, unsound doctrine leads you away from loving God, leads you away from honoring the Lord Jesus Christ and from loving your neighbor. It leads you away from the Bible and healthy habits. It's, it's healthy. It's sound. Here's the second thing about, about sound doctrine. Sound doctrine always agrees with the teachings of Jesus, always. And it always agrees with the teachings in Scripture about Jesus. Sound doctrine elevates the lordship of Jesus Christ. Sound doctrine always elevates the person of Jesus Christ above everything else. It lifts up the words of Jesus Christ and the idea of faith and the idea of grace. It always places Jesus at the center of whatever it does. It doesn't put culture at the center. It doesn't put money, popularity, possessions. It puts Jesus at the center of everything. Now, there's a kind of a popular false doctrine today that you'll hear even in churches that says, well, we just, you know, we want to love people and we want to accept everyone and we want to have tolerance for everyone. But here's the thing you have to understand about God's love. There's a false love in the world today that says love is just accepting and embracing everyone and everything. But that's not God's love. God's love is a transforming love love. God's love is a changing love. God's love is a love when it comes down on you, when it fills you, it changes you because it's a good love. It's not the love that just leaves us in the muck of our sin. It's a, it's a love that cleans us up. It's a love that, that pulls us out of our self-destructive ways. It's a love that leads us to godliness. God's, God's love does not say, well, I just love you just the way you are, honey, you know? I love the fact that you're a pedophile. I just love the fact that you beat your wife. That's, I just love you. I'm so desperate for a friend. I just love the fact that you cheat on your spouse or that you gossip or that you're full of lust or full of hate. All right, that's not God's love. That's hate. God's love is efficacious. God's love changes us from the inside out. It changes us for the better. It transforms us. It gives us a new life. See, false teaching just encourages people to just keep going down whatever destructive road you might choose. But God's love changes us. And here's the third thing about, about sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is, is, is humble. Notice what he says here about the false teacher. He is, notice he is conceited and he understands nothing. 
He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy and strife and malicious talk and evil suspicions. It says that he is, he is conceited. A false teacher is arrogant. A false teacher is, is proud. When they read the Bible, when they hear a sermon, they decide whether or not they're going to accept it. They, they decide. It's not like I'm going to submit myself to what the Bible says. They decide, uh, I'm going to accept this and I'm, I'm not going to accept this. They decide that they know more than God knows. They decide that they have a more enlightened view of sexuality than the Bible or a view of sin or a view of tolerance. You know, it's interesting when, uh, when each time when I go down to Nicaragua, I get a chance to teach pastors down there. And I think about, we usually have like a question and answer time. Here's what pastors down there never ask me in our question and answer time, which can go on for hours. They never ask me, how do you feel about this? Or what do you think about this? It's almost like they don't care how I feel about anything or think. They ask me, what does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible teach about this? What is the doctrine on this? They want to know what God says. And yet I think often about how we are here in the States. Because here in the States, oftentimes we get our doctrine from the latest book, from, from the latest movie, from, from music, from Christian celebrities without checking out what they say or what they teach against the Bible, what that song says, what that movie teaches. Last weekend, we covered kind of some, some interesting topics. Um, and I covered one topic. For instance, we talked a little bit about wine, if you were here. And it got a couple people up in arms. They were like, what? What? I can't believe that you said that. And so after church, in fact, in all three services, I had some people who kind of got in my face, like really close. And they're like, you know, dude, I, I can't believe you said that. I can't believe you, you, you went there. And now let me tell you something about these people. I thank God for those people. I thank God. They did the right thing. When you hear the pastor teach something and you're not sure it's Bible, then you should ask. You should not just take what you hear in a song, what you read in a book, and without checking it against Scripture, and you shouldn't do it from what you hear up here either. If you hear something come out of my mouth and you're like, I'm not sure I understand that. I'm not sure where that comes from. I'm not sure if that's Scripture. You should ask me. I had people last weekend kind of walking by when they saw me having conversations, like going, oh, you know. I'm like, no, this is awesome. This is what we should be doing. Now, we should do it with respect, and we should do it with love, and we should do it humbly, which is what everyone last weekend did. But we should do it. We ask questions. See, when you, when you talk about what you believe with someone, when you talk about doctrine, don't quote me. Don't quote some book that you, that you read. Quote Jesus. Quote Paul, quote Moses and, and John, quote chapter and verse. Develop a sound doctrine. Get in your Bible. Have it be based on study and, and, and personal conviction. See, the key to developing healthy doctrine is humility before God. It's a submission to God and his truth. In Proverbs 9, 10, it says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. The fear of the Lord the fear of God, the submission to God, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The beginning of wisdom says this, I don't know it all. I don't know it all. I don't understand it all, but God does. So I'm gonna open God's word. I'm gonna study God's word. I'm gonna pray about God's word. I'm gonna research it and apply it to my life. Now I've met people and I hear this, I hear people say this to me every now and then. They say it like it's a badge of honor. People who say things like this, I'm not a, pastor, I'm not a theologian. I just love Jesus. I love, I love when people tell me that. It would be like, it would be like me saying, um, you know, um, 
I don't really want to get to know my wife. I just love her. I don't want to hear how her day was. I don't want to hear how, you know, what her problems are. I don't want to know how to pray for her. I just want to love her. I don't have to sit down and have a conversation over dinner about her day. I just want to love her, right? You'd be like, well, that's ridiculous. That's not a relationship. That's not love. Exactly. People say, I'm not a theologian. I just love Jesus. What they're saying is, I don't want to get to know him. I just want to get all the benefits without having to really have to get to know him. See, what they fail to understand is when you really love Jesus, you'll want to know him deeply. That's what theology is. Theology is God. It's just knowing God. It's just getting to, into the heart of God. And you'll want to know God. Because the problem is we don't intuitively know God and how to live with him. See, the reality is this. Every believer is a theologian. Every one of you are theologians. It's just some of you aren't good theologians, right? That, that, that's the bottom line. See, because the way, the way that you live will always hinge on your doctrine, on what you believe. See, what you really believe will always determine how you practically live. It will impact your relationships and your marriage and your, your relationship with your boss and your finances and, and all that. So if you don't like the way you're living, you start by changing what you believe. He goes on in verse 5, he says, this in constant friction between men of, of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a, is a means to financial gain. We're going to continue on this discussion next week. But the bottom line is this. I think with our jobs, dealing with difficult people at work and in bosses and dealing with people who teach false doctrine dealing with our own spiritual growth, what I think is important for us to understand is it always starts with the Lord Jesus Christ. It always starts with him. I thought it might be good for us to, to close with communion because it reminds us a little bit about what this is all about. And the guys are going to go back right now and they're going to grab the bread and grab the cup and bring that forward. And if, you have, uh, if you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and trusted in him, I want to encourage you to, to take bread and take, take the cup as it comes by and to hold on to that for a moment. But I want to remind you about this, that it, again, it all starts with, with Jesus Christ. It's not a bait and switch. Or someone said last night, it's not law, grace, and then back to law again. It's not like, well, I get saved by grace. And then once I get saved by grace, then it's my responsibility to change. Okay, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is this, you're, you're changed, you're transformed the same way you're saved. You got saved by grace. And you will be changed by grace. You got saved by a gift of God. And you will be changed from the inside out as a gift from God. God will do it to you. God will begin to change you and change your heart and change your thoughts. And the only way you won't change is if you fight him on it. Because you were saved by grace... And you are changed by grace.